Southeast Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today will be Larry J. Daniel, a Methodist minister who's also the author of numerous books on the Civil War. His most recent effort is Days of Glory, a long-needed study of the Army of the Cumberland. We'll be back in a moment with Larry J. Daniel. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. On Civil War Talk Radio, we frequently hear some commercial announcements for freight trains, which reminds me that you have to go back to the 18. 70s, when the new, relatively new technology of uh, freight trains and telegraphs that brought communication and transportation to previously unimagined speeds, also caused a need for another new development, which was the invention of, <coughs> excuse me, of time zones across the United States. Because a train leaving at one hour in Washington D.C., arriving at another hour in Cleveland, uh, or let's go across time zones, arriving in Chicago. Uh, would no longer be on appropriate time if they just kept the local watch. So, of course, you eventually have time zones and synchronized time, mostly to avoid train accidents. And I bring all this up because uh, a few months ago we had a time zone mishap that led to uh, a mischance to talk with our guest today, Larry J. Daniel. And I'm delighted to say that we got over that. And uh, when the phone rang today and everything was on time, everybody was happy again. And we're delighted to welcome to Civil War Talk Radio, Larry J. Daniel. Larry, how are you doing? Good morning, Jerry. How are you? Welcome Good. from Memphis. Good to hear from you. Uh, well, we're going to talk today certainly about uh, Days of Glory, but uh, your, your very important new book on the Army of the Cumberland. But I thought, if you don't mind, I'd like to start asking you a question or two about your day job uh, when you're not writing about the Civil War. Well, I... Uh... I'm the minister of the 
third largest United Methodist Church in the state of Tennessee. Um, we have moved to Memphis uh, just recently from Murray, Kentucky. Methodist ministers uh, move around. Uh, we were in Murray for nine years, and uh, I'm originally from Memphis, my wife and I both, so we're back home again, and we love it, and we're thoroughly enjoying the church. Having such a, a large congregation, <clears throat> it sounds like uh, that would be a very demanding thing to do. How do you find time to do research and writing with the well, people ask me that all the time. Well, it's uh, it's something that you just do at night when you get home, and it's uh, it's the way I unwind. Uh, it's my escapism, if you will. Uh, some people watch a football game. I do this, and uh, I, uh, people often ask me, "Why don't you write about religion?" And I'm because I tell them that would be work. This is fun. <laughs> so it's it's just the way I chill out, and and it works for me. How did you get this interest in the Civil War? Do you remember when you first... Well, I think the bug bit early, and I've met a number of people in the Civil War community that picked it up late, but for me, it came early, and I think it uh, probably came about uh, in the Boy Scouts as I walked Shiloh, which is about two hours from Memphis, and I just became very, very fascinated, even at a, a, an early age. So um, I, I trace it back early on. Shiloh is just a marvelous battlefield, wouldn't you say? It is. It is. Now it, you know, it's like uh, it's like the girlfriend that you haven't seen in thirty years. She's still beautiful, <laughs> but boy, has she changed! And uh, it, she's changed over the years, but she, she still looks beautiful to me. <laughs> well, well I, I, I guess I first went to Shiloh maybe five five to ten years ago, and compared to many of the more developed battlefields in the eastern yeah. half of the country. It really is in a marvelously preserved condition. Well, it's away from urban areas, and that has protected it somewhat from, from sprawl. There is a little bit of that encroaching on it, but it's still in a pretty isolated. You have to want to go there, and that actually has turned out to be a benefit, I think, for the park. So It really has. I, I was very fortunate once to be on the, the Delta Queen, the, the right, boat, right. coming down the Tennessee River just as... Uh, were you on the time when Richard McMurray was on it? Would, were you there that time? I was. Well, I, I, Richard was on. Was he? Uh huh. Yes. It, it, I think he's done it more than once. Oh yes, yes. And yes, he, he and Jack Davis both, I think, do that. Yes, they do. I, I can recommend to all our listeners if you have the uh, wherewithal to do it. There is no better way to experience uh, the Civil War in the West than to go on a, a steamboat tour on the Tennessee River and see battlefields like Shiloh and Fort Donaldson from the waterside and then uh, disembark and, and explore them. So you've had the chance to do that too, I gather. Well, I've never been on the I've never been on the, the river tour, no. And uh, I really would like to do that sometime. And uh, I know Richard is, is, and I have often talked about it, he's told me what a marvelous experience it is. It, it truly is. It, it's a great way to see it. Well, the Western Theater is, is something Richard McMurray has certainly written about. You've right. written about it. Uh, uh, you and I share a, a strong interest in the yeah. Army of the yeah. Ohio, Army of the Cumberland. And it seems to me that that's really, uh, Richard might have been one of the pioneers in bringing it about, but really interest in the Western Theater today almost uh, is starting to overtake interest in the Virginia battles. Well, there's no doubt about it. I think that, that there's uh, the, the battlefront today, the battle lines uh, are, have been drawn, and it's no longer north versus south. It is east versus west. 
and I think this revisionist view of the war probably started with Tom Connolly, who I call the father of Western revisionism, uh, started in the, the, 19, the late 1960s, early 1970s with his two-volume iconoclastic work on the Army of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but since then, a whole array of uh, just very exciting authors uh, have come about on the Western theater, and I think one of the really exciting things about this time is that you and I have gotten to actually meet a lot of these people, like Richard McMurray, and and uh, I've never met uh, Peter Cousins, but uh, Stephen Woodworth and John Marzalek and uh, all, all of these guys, Wiley Sword, who have written on the Western theater. What an exciting time to be alive! And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a whole new way of looking at the war. I, I think you're absolutely right there. I think the, the historiography has shifted where people are focusing on the West, and, and you're right, we are fortunate to have a lot of these people with us that we can talk to and as well as read their, their works. You use the word revisionism, and I, I was glad to hear that because sometimes, uh, I'm sure you've encountered this, in, in the general public, the word revisionism is often used in a pejorative sense. Uh, you're, you're, you shouldn't be a revisionist historian. But if there weren't revisionism, you and I would have nothing to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, every history book in some way revises that which comes before. We have new evidence to work with. Well, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that there are always uh, new ideas. And uh, I think that uh, there had to be a period, too, where you got away from the genre of the old South uh, and could take some serious uh, scholarly look at some of these, uh, fresh look at some of these issues, and I think that time has uh, has now come, and I think that that's uh, what we're in the midst of now. It's a really exciting time. It is. Now, the in the quest to write about the Civil War, one pretty much has to either take a revisionist interpretation of something that's already been written about, or you can find something that nobody has really written much about, and it's pretty pretty darn difficult to do the latter at this point. Yeah, I th- yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, uh, publishing is uh, so tight at this time, it's so difficult to, to get published that you can't just simply rehash other people's work anymore. That that won't float. I mean, I think that we went through a period where there was, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of rehashing. But I uh, I think you're right. You have to give a different twist to it, or you have to come up with new sources. And, and that's the key to writing today. It, it is, and I'll, I'll tell you, in, in the mid-90s when I was working on my dissertation, I came across the Army of the Ohio, the, the Union Army in the, right. in the middle between the Army of the Tennessee and the Army of the Potomac. And I could hardly believe that there was really nothing modern written about it. And I went ahead and wrote uh, the, uh, All for the Regiment about the Army of the Ohio, which then metamorphoses, metamorphosizes, uh, changes into the uh, the Army of the Cumberland, where it's yeah. much better known. And yet, there is no modern book on the Army of the Cumberland until you came along. Well, I do find that odd and interesting. Both, I uh, I do think that it is time now for scholarship to go north. Uh, we have had a number of books written on, even in the Western theater, 
on all of the major Southern characters, even down to some division commanders have entire books on them. Yet it's interesting that corps commanders even do not have virtually anything written about them in the Army of the Cumberland. There are very few books. Uh, in, in the case of both the Army of the Tennessee mm-hmm. and the Army of the Cumberland, two separate but both northern armies in the Western Theater, there have been no modern works. Now, uh, it was actually my intention to write a book uh, right after this one on the Army of the Tennessee. So it would kind of be a two-volume work, one on the Cumberland, one on the Army of the Tennessee, both northern armies. But Mm -hmm. Stephen Woodworth beat me to the punch on that one. He's got a contract with Knopf, and uh, he has finished that uh, book now. I've talked with him recently. He's having to trim it down, but it probably will be coming out next year sometime. So um, I'm going in a different uh, direction. But that was the original plan to do a two-volume work. I see. Well, what about so, so we have Stephen Woodworth's book to look forward in 2006, perhaps uh, something like that. Yeah, I, I've read a number of the chapters, and it's a, a very, very interesting, fascinating book. Uh, of course, dealing with uh, the more the area, the Vicksburg cam- campaign, Shiloh, and the and the, uh, and the battles of, of that particular army. But eventually, they they all merge into what we would today call an army group under Sherman in the Atlanta campaign. Now, you mentioned there are core commanders in the Army of the Cumberland right. who really haven't gotten the attention they deserve. Right. Who do you have in mind? Well, the, the first one, uh, well, the, the two most obvious ones are Alexander McCook and Thomas Crittenden. And uh, they uh, both had tremendous influence uh, in, in the Army uh, for a long period of time. Uh, they're Mutual careers came to an end uh, with the disaster at Chickamauga uh, when they were both finally axed. But it's interesting that Alexander McCook's corps was routed first at Perryville, then at Stones River, then at Chickamauga. On three uh, successive battles, his corps was the one that routed so uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, he was uh, not admired by his peers, his fellow officers. Uh, fascinating person. You can't find much on him. He has a few very limited papers in the Library of Congress, but I've never been able to trace down any cache of, of private papers of his. So just not much, even less known, really, about Thomas Crittenden. Let me let me stick with McCook for a okay. minute. He's um, he's one of the the fighting McCooks of Ohio. Yeah, he Wh- is. Which one was Long he? military history background there, and uh, apparently showed some promise early on. He was at first Bull Run over in Virginia, then came over uh, to the Western Theater, and that's really what he was identified with uh, uh, for the balance of the war. Um, I think from the very beginning, uh, comments that uh, were made about him, that people thought that he had gone beyond his level. Um, I think one soldier described him as the biggest uh, schoolboy in the playground. Mm -hmm. Um, They all talk about his childish look. The the soldiers referred to him as old gut, and that's because he had a few too many pounds around the middle. (laughs) And... um, but uh, didn't uh, John Beatty refer to him as a chucklehead? 
Uh, he did, and uh, of course that that marvelous uh, diary of Beatty's, which offered so much juicy information for my book, because yeah. uh, Beatty was very opinionated. He was, and uh, unfortunately, he left the army at, at uh, one point, and that stops. But uh, uh, very fortunately for the historian. Uh, an officer by the name of Opdyke comes in, and he's just as opinionated, and his letters also survive. So that kind of picks, picks up, and neither one of them admired um, uh, McCook. Uh, so it gives a lot of good, personal, juicy uh, opinions uh, about the man. Yeah, Beatty's memoir is really a wonderful. Oh, it is. It is book. Now you mentioned McCook's corps is routed. Did you say that Perryville, then in Stones River, right. Chickamauga, right? And that may remind some listeners uh, of the Eleventh Corps, the Army of the Potomac, uh, the, the German corps yeah. that's routed at Chancellorsville, then routed two months later at Gettysburg. Do you? Let me ask you this. It seems to me the German in the Eastern Army. The 11th Corps is held in, in disregard, is disrespected by the rest of the army, uh, and there's a certain amount of nativism there, perhaps, that these yes. immigrants. Yeah. McCook's Corps never, you don't see the same kind of nativism in the Western Army. No, I, don't see it. Do you I, I think it? clearly toward the end they hold McCook personally responsible, but That's you must understand that after the Battle of Chickamauga, both McCook's and Crittenden's corps were phased out the 20 and the 21st Corps, mm-hmm. uh, they were no longer, and uh, they were they were merged into one. Now, uh, there was some resentment in the Army of the uh, Cumberland about that. They thought that it was seen as punishment for what happened at uh, Chickamauga. Uh, so ultimately, the, you know, it was, it was just kind of intermeshed into this larger conglomerate. But no, I don't think it ever had the, uh, the harsh feeling uh, of the balance of the army like the 11th Corps did. No, there, and I think there's a lot of other differences in East and West, and uh, I'd like to talk more about them, sure. which is what we're going to do when we come back after taking a short break on Civil War Talk okay. Radio. Thanks. 